Well, good morning. My name is Robbie, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I uh, have the privilege of walking us through the Word this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 1, so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you do, uh, please turn to John chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible uh, and would like one, uh, or, or there's two options this morning, or if you neglected to grab your communion elements as you walked in. Just stick a hand up in the air and we can walk uh, both a Bible and or communion to you as we are turning to the book of John. Chapter 1. So in this, the second week of Advent, a season where the church sets time aside to prepare our hearts and our heads to remember and celebrate the first coming of our Jesus and look forward to the second coming, uh, his return. Our brothers and sisters uh, have prayed this particular prayer in the second week of Advent for hundreds of years. So please listen as I pray this for us this morning. Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So this morning we're going to spend some time talking about this book, the word that we get to hold in our hands. And, and the priceless value of Scripture is that it constantly points us to Jesus. It is either in the Old Covenant pointing us to the Jesus that is yet to come or in the New Testament or New Covenant pointing us back to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, what that accomplishes for us, and then again points us to the Jesus that is to come. It is, uh, Jesus is the theme of Scripture and the lens that we understand Scripture through as well as being the anchor that keeps us stable and resilient. So Jesus is both the theme of Scripture, and so what, and during this sermon, I'm going to be repeating myself a lot, and that's intentional. It's going to be kind of, we're going to circle back and then, and then, and then hit a point again, and then circle back and hit that point again, because I want us to make sure that we leave with an understanding that Jesus is the theme of Scripture and is the interpretive lens that we look through in order to understand and properly apply Scripture. So, remember, does anybody remember those old school 3D glasses? Right, the technology has totally changed now, but back in the day, 
you remember, they were to, the 3D glasses would, would work by having this, this image either on the screen or on a piece of paper where there's basically two images that if you looked at it without the glasses was, was a mess, right? It was kind of confusing and even especially on the screen, if you remember those old 3D movies, man, you would get the worst headache if you tried to watch them without the glasses because it was these two overlapping images. So you, the, it was confusing, but then you'd put on these glasses and, and, and the images would come together and, and suddenly have clarity and, and, and literally, at least our perception is that it would leap off of the screen, leap off of the page. Now in some respects, scripture can, can be similar. Right? We can see what appears to be these conflicting images that add confusion and, and frustration. Right? How can we both be holy and live righteously and demonstrate love and grace and compassion to literally everyone, especially our enemies? How can God be both infinitely mercy, merciful and perfectly just? Right? These seem to be these conflicting images, but, but these two seemingly conflicting images not only become clear, but take on a peculiarly vivid beauty when we see them through the lens of Jesus. When we look at his life, we see, oh, that's how you can be both merciful and just. Oh, that's how you can be holy and still love your enemy. It's actually in loving your enemy that you are acting in a holy way. Like in Jesus, we begin to see those things. He is the lens that turns what is confusing and unclear in Scripture into a stunningly relevant image. Why? How? Well, that's why we're going to look at John, because we should start at the beginning, because it is a very good place to start. My, my Julie Andrews fans out there. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Tracking so far? Okay, if we all together? Okay, so the Word is God, the Word, made everything. And there's nothing that exists that was not made through Him and for Him and by Him. And then it goes on. If you jump, well, that, was, that page changed. Uh, if we jump down to verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word, that same word, the word that was God, the word that made everything, became flesh. At a focused point in history, divinity acquired humanity. Right? The divine perfection broke into the mud and blood of human existence and got his hands and feet filthy with the business of loving his enemies, his rebellious yet precious image bearers, like you and me. Not 
exploding onto the scene with divine armies and this spectacular show of power, but just quietly slipping in, hardly noticed. The first one who is alerted to his coming is a young girl from the middle of nowhere. The first people to celebrate his arrival are like gruff and dirty nobodies. And they're celebrating him in a stable, likely reeking of dirt and excrement. By accident, by chance, not according to scripture, according to scripture, by God's divine plan set in motion before the first star was lit. I have become increasingly convinced that it is not possible to be a true Christian and not live with a regular sense of dumbstruck awe. Not like daily moment-to-moment dumbstruck awe, although under the circumstances that would be entirely reasonable, but a regular occurrence of how can this be? This is way bigger than I assumed this is. How can you possibly read this book with any level of understanding and not be regularly left with a sense of, did he just say what it sounds like he just said? Wait a minute, the one who just said that is God. Wait a minute, God! The creator of all things just told all of his people, you have completely misunderstood my word, you're doing it wrong. Yahweh just said that you should forgive over and over and over and over again just like I forgive you over and over and over and over again. The the perfect, omniscient, divine creator of all things who spoke existence into existence just brought the best wine to a party. What? If you don't read this book and are regularly left with a sense of awe, if you don't look up at the sky and look at creation, look into your own heart and and be filled with a regular sense of of, of just being utterly astounded and blown away of how can this possibly be, then are we really reading this book? Or at least are we understanding what we read? If Scripture feels overwhelming to you and leaves you with a sense that God is way too immense and mysterious to fully understand or to fit into any particular theological camp or denomination or country or culture or human understanding of anything at all, that is because you are beginning to view him rightly. And the more you dig into that, will only increase your sense of his immensity and mystery. I am most concerned about the person who feels like they know all there is to know about the Bible and that it contains all there is to know about God. The person who thinks that there is little mysterious about this, that there's nothing all that confusing, and that they pretty much have it all handled, is the one that I would argue clearly understands Scripture the least. If the answers are always easy, your word and your God 
is way too small and therefore not the God of the Bible. Because what the God of the Bible says in Isaiah 55 is my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The heavens, right? So the universe, imagine the universe, galaxy upon galaxy upon galaxy. Our, our brains can't even really comprehend the scope, that size. And God says that that just begins to describe how different my thoughts are from your thoughts. How small your knowledge and ideas are compared to mine. And Job 37 says, God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. And Paul tells us this is the case in 1 Corinthians 13 because we see like we're looking through a mirror dimly. It's like we're looking through a broken and foggy mirror. We can catch glimpses, but we don't see it fully. And we know only in part. So the reality is we can never understand God and his word fully, but we can understand God and his word truly through Jesus. The word, the divine logos, divine information who took on humanity in part so that we could see scripture lived out and see how the Father actually meant for us to obey it is the theme of this book and the interpretive lens that we must see scripture through because he is the only one who has ever perfectly interpreted scripture, ever. He is the only one who has the authority to correct universal misunderstandings regarding scripture, as in everyone had it wrong, which we see him doing regularly in scripture when he consistently says, you have heard it said this, but I say this. His point is not God's word wasn't wrong. You, and by you I mean literally every single one of you just misinterpreted it. So let me clarify for you. For 2,000 years, the people that Jesus was talking to misinterpreted his word and he corrects that. Do we honestly believe that we are incapable of the same error? Surely we are not that foolishly arrogant. We need Jesus to correct and clarify. The way that Jesus lives is the only perfect representation of obedience to the word. And it is the way the word is supposed to be obeyed. Even more incredibly, that man who walked the dirt and the fields and the roads of what is now Israel and Jordan and Syria and Lebanon, who built with his hands ate, cried, healed, loved, and suffered, is currently, in every way, alive and active in our world today. 
that, that life as a perfected human, the, the fullest potential of human existence that was the life of Jesus on earth was still just a limited, tiny offshoot of all that he is currently right now. He is active in a hut in the Himalayas where a handful of people gather together to cry out to him. He is active in families in Pakistan who risk murder at the hands of their own families and neighbors in order to continue to share Jesus' good news. That he lived for real and that he died and that he came back from the dead and that he still lives. He is active in the Middle East and in India and in China where he inexplicably continues to appear to people and make them his own. He is active in his work of redemption and adoption in every corner and race and subculture of our country. And because he is alive, Right now, we must continually remind ourselves your way and my way of interpreting Scripture is not better than His. Your way and my way is not more holy than Jesus. And while you may hear that and think, Robbie, that is ridiculous. Obviously, I would never claim that my way is more holy than Jesus. The reality is far too often, church, our lives our decisions, our thoughts, the people that we are in conflict with betray otherwise. If we are not careful, we may find ourselves justifying disobeying Jesus or even accusing others of breaking the law or being deceived when they are in fact being just like Jesus. Just like Jesus who was often accused of breaking the law and being deceived. Jesus reveals that perfect obedience to God's holy word looked very different than the religious leaders, the ones who knew scripture better than anyone else at the time, except for Jesus, thought that it should. As a result, when we read this book, we must look at it through the lens of the only person who ever understood it and lived it perfectly and adjust our interpretation to match his. Don't underestimate how important this is. Christ is the lens that we look through and the anchor that keeps us stable and resilient in both our understanding of the word and the way that we live it out. Right? Anchors are a bit of a double-edged sword. Right? If you are anchored to something, at some point it will prevent you from going where you want to go. Right, That's kind of its point, to not let you go anywhere. It will pull against where you are drifting intention- unintentionally or where you are actively trying to get. It's going to keep you in place. If it never pulls against you, you are not actually anchored to anything. It's still in the boat. Which means... You are following your own relative truth or you are being driven and tossed uncontrollably by circumstances. So if your interpretation and understanding of Scripture never bothers you, never prevents you from doing whatever you want, never asks something of you that you would, quite frankly, rather not do, never disagrees with your opinion 
on something, then we must be honest with ourselves and admit that we are not allowing Scripture to conform us into the image of Jesus. We are misusing Scripture to try to conform Jesus into a reflection of ourselves. Arguably the most pervasive and dangerous idolatry in the church. However, the value of an anchor is that it allows you, it of its own, with no work on your part, helps you to remain steadfast as circumstances pound against you. When you are tempted to make choices based on self-interest rather than genuine love, when secular culture or church culture is drifting away from the Jesus of the Bible, you remain resilient and secured to the anchor of your soul. When we see Scripture only through our own lens or through the limited lens of one particular pastor or author that we follow, we can find ourselves knowing Scripture well and not knowing Jesus at all. Jesus himself warns us of this in John chapter 5, just a few pages from, from where we opened up. You search the Scriptures. In verse 39 of chapter 5, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, he says. Yet you refuse to come to me that you would have life. Don't put your hope in this book. I cannot be contained in a book. The purpose of the book is to point you to me. Otherwise, it's of no value. It's just pages and ink. It points to me. You search the scriptures because you think in them you will find eternal life, but they bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me. Our hope is not in the Bible. Our hope is in the Jesus that every page of the Bible points to. Paul, in his second letter to Timothy, warns us to rightly handle the word of truth. And just as a caution, I think there's two significant ways that we can wrongly handle the word of truth and not even necessarily realize that we're doing it. So two ways that we can mishandle the word of truth. Number one is seeing the Bible as one of the options to be considered. When we forget who Jesus is, when we forget the Word. God incarnate affirmed that this is legit and then his life is recorded of what it's supposed to look like. When we forget what that is anchored in, we look at it as though his thoughts on things are one of the viewpoints to be considered alongside my own ideas and interpretations and preferences and what others around me agree with. But if you're actually reading this book, you would find it difficult to not notice Jesus in the Gospels regularly telling the religious people, yes, you are all in agreement and you are all equally and epically wrong. So having a lot of people around you agreeing doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus is one of them. Our litmus test cannot be 
do others agree with me? Our litmus test must be, do I agree with Jesus? That is a paradigm shift in how we approach Scripture and our faith, and it is necessary. Number two, we don't want to find ourselves using the Bible to justify disobeying Jesus. I hear it far too often, church, in my years of ministry. What more brilliant and diabolical tactic could Satan use than to convince Christians that disobeying Jesus makes them better Christians? We must be on guard that we are not doing this, that we are not using our interpretation of Scripture to justify, to make us feel good, to make us feel righteous about ignoring and disobeying Jesus. Over my years in ministry, I've heard people argue why we don't have to care for the foreigner or the orphan, why they don't have to give, why they don't have to forgive, or why they don't have to love those people, because in loving those people, that would be condoning their evil. And horrifically, we do that, giving Jesus an elbow and a wink, like, huh? Right, Jesus? I'm nailing it, right, buddy? And Jesus could only possibly be responding with heartbreak and grief as he says, those people? Do, do you mean sinners? Do you mean the only people that I came to save? You're quoting the Pharisees, not me. I said, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Can you think of a more demonic deception than believing the gospel that Jesus came to save sinners as a demonstration of God's love for them right where they are in the midst of their sinful rebellion, that believing that would be supporting evil. And yet, that can seep into our hearts as we look at people not with Christ's eyes of compassion, but with the Pharisees' eyes of self-righteous judgment and say, ha, well, because I know this so well. Thank you, Jesus, for not making me like that sinner. But Jesus, in his word, warns us that's not the person who goes home justified. It is the one who is crying out, Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. Church, the Word became flesh. And the way Paul encourages Timothy is the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. So here is where it gets really good. 
Here's why it matters when you're looking at the Word through the lens of Jesus. When you're looking at it through our own lens, we try to find ourselves. We try to find our own justification. We try to find, we try to ensure that we are right, or at least I'm doing better than you are. But when we look through the lens of Jesus, then we begin to see the hope that that ancient prayer calls us to, that says we are to find in the Word. Paul says to Titus, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our time our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Division, division, division. Division in our own hearts, division in the church, division in the culture around us. Division. We were tools of it and victims of it. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. The washing and regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified or made right by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Come on, that is awesome. Come on, if that doesn't inspire an amen, if that doesn't stir you a little bit, then what are we doing here, church? If hearing that doesn't cause something in you to kind of feel a little riled up, like, yes, yes, you seriously? Seriously? For jacked up, messy people like me and like you, this is our God's response? This is what we get to be a part of? This is what we get to offer? Our hope that is found in the Word is that it reminds us that there is hope even for you and for me. That we don't have to pretend anymore. We don't have to fake it anymore. We don't have to act like we have it all together. Because everybody knows you don't. Secret's out. We're all terrified and trying to figure out how to figure this out and need help. We can all admit that openly because of this, because of Him. And this book that reminds us of that day in and day out, our hope is that even though apart from Christ, you and I are foolish and disobedient and slaves to sin, and every moment of every day that we forget who Christ is and who we are in Him, we slip right back into that. But that in Christ, because of His life, not yours, because of His obedience, not mine, His death in your and my place, and His resurrection from the dead to complete all that was required, He gives you faith as a gift from Him that you and I neither deserved nor earned. He washed you in His mercy. He lavished you with His grace. He makes you new by sealing you and filling you with His Holy Spirit. Should I go on? I feel like I should go on. I'm going to go on. He empowers you to understand and act more like Jesus. He gives you an eternal inheritance. An eternal inheritance. Not the dust and ash that we try to put our hope in that is gone in an instant, but eternal inheritance that cannot be lost, that cannot perish. He adopts you forever into His family. He calls you daughter and son 
He gives you eternal life, not something that begins at, at our death, but something that starts right now and continues long after physical death. All because of his extraordinary and relentless love for you as a precious reflection of his glory and love. Church, that is the hope that we should find on every page of this book that should strike us with such an overwhelming sense of awe. It should leave us speechless with humility and overwhelmed with gratitude and beauty in all things. Jesus in John 17, which is an extraordinary prayer. It's Jesus praying for you. And in that he says, you've given me all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given. And this is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent we would know him, truly know him and be known by him. Church, do you see this book as an opportunity to know Jesus? It's just the beginning of that. Does this book inspire you to joyfully submit to him? Does it grow your sense of awe in who he is and what he has done and who you and I get to be in and through him? Do you find comfort and security in the eternal promises, the eternal hope that our Jesus provides and that this book reminds us of over and over again? If so, then join me in remembering the Jesus that is the theme of this book and who is far too incomprehensibly immense and powerful to be entirely contained within it. And remember with me his life, his death on our behalf, and his resurrection to the glory of God. And when our Jesus had given thanks, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this and remember me. In the same way also he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it and remember me. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for reminding us that you are bigger than we could possibly understand. But that you inexplicably invaded your creation so that we could have a glimpse of you. A glimpse of deity. A glimpse of perfection. A glimpse of what we are capable of becoming in you and through you and because of you. Stir in us a sense of awe, 
because of that, a delight in you and a love for you and all that you allow us to be. Amen.